Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Michael Gershon. Dr. Gershon was formerly the professor and chairman of the Anatomy and Cell Biology faculty at Columbia University, and he is now professor of pathology at the Department of Pathology and Cell Biology. He is the author of The Second Brain. Your gut has a mind of its own, a groundbreaking new understanding of nervous disorders of the stomach and the intestine. This book was written in 1998, and since then there has been even more revelations and discoveries. This is critical to solving all kinds of diseases that humans and animals have. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Michael Gershon to It's Rainmaking Time. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I think the first thing we should probably do, Dr. Gershon, is lay the foundation and a frame of reference for the audience about the second brain or what's called the gut brain. Talk about it. Well, the brain in the gut is uh, actually my name for it. Um, and it comes from um, its peculiar ability unique ability, rather, uh, to control the activity of an organ independently of influence by the brain or spinal cord. So what we're referring to is called technically the enteric nervous system or the intrinsic nervous system of the bowel. And in contrast to every other part of the nervous system other than the brain and spinal cord, uh, the nervous system of the gut operates the bowel, and can even influence neighboring organs such as the gallbladder and pancreas, so it projects away from it. And it's capable of what's called integrative neuronal activity, which means that it can do complex calculations and um, determine behaviors independently of influence uh, from the brain or spinal cord. No other organ can do that. Uh, so it, it's unique in that respect. And because it shares with the brain the ability to manifest uh, independent, as it were, thinking, I use the word advisedly, uh, <laughs> called it the second brain. Let me just say something about brain. Um, people sometimes get confused about that, and I don't want people to. Um, when I talk about brain, I'm talking about the dirty, rotten, uh, disgusting business of digestion. That's what the gut does. Uh, religion, poetry, philosophy, God help us, politics, uh, it leaves that to the brain in the head. So the brain has, the brain in the head treats the gut as a good CEO might. It delegates responsibility for these mundane matters of digestion, and it doesn't like to get, if I can mix a metaphor, its hands dirty with that sort of thing. Is it true, then, that this is all going on autonomically? Well, if by autonomically you mean without coming to consciousness, that's correct. It's not voluntary. You can't make your gut contract. So it's involuntary to that extent. But it isn't determined just as a reflex. The gut samples what's going on inside the gut and it responds to that and there are um, 
actions that your brain can take that can influence what the gut does. Not the details of how much enzyme to secrete to digest, how fast, to, you know, what pattern of motility to select. The gut does that. But the brain can tell it to do more or less. It can even tell it to vomit. You say in the book, though, that the gut knows what it's doing. How do you know that? Well, let me tell you, there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> you did say that in the book, which yes, I appreciate. I mean, <laughs> uh, Ecclesiastes was right in that respect. So it was discovered years ago that if you cut all connection between the brain or the spinal cord. So the brain and the spinal cord together constitute the central nervous system. And the spinal cord is a wholly owned vassal of the brain. So the brain can control parts of the periphery, which is everything in the body other than the brain or spinal cord, uh, either directly or via the spinal cord. Um, so the central nervous system talks to the periphery. And Two English investigators many years ago by the name of Bayless and Starling um, at the turn of the previous uh, two centuries ago, that is, when the 19th went to the 20th in what must have been a really dirty, uh, cold laboratory in, in, in London with the fogs rolling in off the North Sea, um, discovered that if they cut all the nerves going from the brain or spinal cord to the gut and increase pressure in the lumen of the gut, the gut still would respond with a coordinated wave of what they call the law of the intestine. That is oral contraction, anal relaxation. That was propulsive. So the material inside the gut was propelled in the direction of the anus. Uh, and it did this reproducibly even when cut off from the brain. And 18 years after their publication, a German scientist by the name of Trendelenburg had tuberculosis. So to set it for you, war raged in Europe at the time. Trenches divided the continent from the Swiss border to the English Channel. Huge armies were paralyzed in a deadly embrace. People were getting killed in the trenches. But behind the trenches in Germany, Trendelenburg had tuberculosis. And tuberculosis meant that you didn't go in the army, even the German army. But poor Trendelenburg had to keep busy. So he strung up some guinea pig intestine in a test tube, bubbled it in a physiological solution so that it kept it warm, and he put a little J-shaped tube into, the, into it, and when he blew into the tube, the gut blew back. And it was tremendously profound that the gut could blow back at him, because in doing that, it had to sense that Trendelenburg had just blown in and increased pressure in, inside the gut in its lumen, and the gut had to act on it. And in acting on it, it had shown exactly the same activity that Bayless and Starling had seen 18 years earlier uh, in an intact animal. But here, the brain and the gut were in the garbage with the rest of the animal. There was nothing in the test tube but gut. So that showed clearly and conclusively 
that in an isolated preparation, the gut could manifest coordinated behavior. It depended on the nervous system. If you paralyzed nerves, it went away and uh, was completely alone in doing it. So it depended on what Bayless and Stalling called the intrinsic nervous mechanism of the gut. And they knew, of course, by that time, because another pair of German scientists, they found an immense number of nerve cells in the wall of the gut. Knowing that this huge nervous system, over a million nerve cells, uh, in the guinea pig's small intestine was there, they were able to say, God, there's a lot of nerve cells, and they must be doing it all themselves. And to continue with the history, another English scientist by the name of Langley, who is very nasty but great, uh, being nice and being bright don't necessarily correlate. Understood. Anyway, Understood. what Langley did is Langley defined what we now call the autonomic nervous system. And he defined it as a uh, completely motor system with a peripheral synapse. And he divided it into two divisions, a sympathetic and a parasympathetic. And the sympathetic was connected to the central nervous system in the thoracic and lumbar sections of the body. And the um, parasympathetic was connected to the central nervous system in the cranial and the sacral. And we looked at all of the nerve cells in the gut and found there were many, many millions and looked at the numbers of fibers running from the brain and spinal cord to the gut. There were just a few thousand. He said, gee, you can't have such a small number of fibers going to so many nerve cells and reach them all. And so he concluded that many of the nerve cells inside the gut received no connection at all from the central nervous system. So he classified the nervous system, this large set of neurons that Auerbach had found, as an independent nervous system, the enteric division. So he had three divisions, Langley, sympathetic, parasympathetic, and enteric. So Langley at the time was the um, editor of the Journal of Physiology, which dominated the field of physiology at the turn of the century, the early 20th century. still a very good journal. And he actually owned it. Um, and he edited it and was an imperious editor. So period, people would actually get, see their, send in a manuscript and see it print and find that Langley had edited it and hadn't even deigned to let them know that he'd made changes in their papers. Anyway, he, after he died, perhaps because people didn't like him, his uh, classification was sort of changed, not officially, or even anyone thought about it. They just simply referred to the sympathetic and parasympathetic and dropped the detail of the enteric nervous system. So years later, when I got going on it, I got all excited. It was an independent nervous system, and I could look at it, and I thought I'd made some important discoveries, and then I discovered it. All these old guys had done everything before me. 
So my great contribution, if there is one, is rediscovering what my betters had already discovered. I want to talk about some of the troubles that people have, like heartburn and ulcers and what you write about and what you've learned in the last 12, 13 years since the book was published. How can I help? Let's talk about heartburn. Why do so many people have it? Yes. Okay, God got angry, but you want a simpler answer than that. (laughs) Nothing more scientific. (laughs) Well, I'd like to know what is happening and does the gut have anything to do with heartburn? Yes, of course. So the sensation of heartburn comes about when acid goes from the stomach up into the esophagus. So the lining of the esophagus is meant to conduct food from your mouth to your stomach. So when you eat a bite of something or other, uh, a pizza or a roll or whatever it is you're eating, a steak, you don't digest it very much in your mouth. and You just chew it up. And some of us do that poorly, others a little better. But, you know, food is pretty rough when it gets down. You put it in the back of your mouth and you, a swallowing reflex starts it down the esophagus. So the esophagus has a lining that's specialized to resist being abraded away by the rough food that we put down it. And it doesn't digest very much, so it's a tough epithelium. But it's not specialized to resist acid. That you find in the stomach. So the junction between the esophagus and the stomach is highly modified to keep the acid that the stomach makes in the stomach and not let it get into the esophagus. When it does get into the esophagus, uh, it burns and it hurts like hell. So the trick is you got to keep it in the stomach. So there's a sphincter. A sphincter is like a valve. It lets things go into the stomach and is not supposed to let stuff go up the other way. But when you get old, it can fail. And sometimes it fails even when you're not old. And some acid sneaks up. And so you've got your own sort of tums that is special glands that make alkali. But if you put a lot of acid up, it just sneaks up in there and burns the esophagus. And, and that's real bad because, first of all, it hurts. And we don't like the sensation of heartburn, which is what happens when acid is burning your esophagus. Uh, it feels the way you'd think it would feel. Uh, secondly, it's not good because it can damage the esophagus. And it can, if it's not really changed, it can lead to a condition called Barrett's esophagus uh, and then cancer. And cancer of the esophagus is no joke. It's a terrible condition. So it's very good to stop GERD or gastroesophageal reflex if you can. And how is it stopped? The cheapest and easiest way is turn off the acid. And one way to do that is take Tums or uh, Gelucil or Maalox, and that neutralizes the acid. But that doesn't last very long. A second approach is to try to paralyze the cells that make acid. And one approach is to 
turn off the ignition on those cells. So there are two switches, three actually, to ignite them. One is triggered by one switch. The key has uh, the molecule acetylcholine. Another has a molecule called gastrin. And the third switch is uh, a molecule called histamine. And so if you take an antagonist that blocks the action of one of the keys, that helps. So um, Tagamet and Zantax are antihistamines. Um, you don't want to mess with the acetylcholine key because if you take enough that blocks that, it blocks too much all over the body. The other way you can do it, which is even more effective, is to block the acid pump. Just take a drug that turns the pump completely off. So don't mess with the keys, the ignition. Just take out the motor. Um, and then you can't make any acid. And uh, Prelosec is the prototypic drug that does that. It's now available over the counter. So you can stop the acid. So for many, many people, that works fine. But if it doesn't, it gets tougher. And ultimately, um, you can try to improve the motility of the gut and the sphincter action with some drugs. And if that doesn't work, you go to surgery. Is it true that as we get older, that many people don't make enough hydrochloric acid in the stomach? Not many, but some. That's called achlorhydria, and that's not a good thing either because that often is a prelude to stomach cancer, and it's sometimes seen in people with pernicious anemia. Um, so those are, that's not a great thing, and it's not common, but it happens. You say that digestion starts in the mouth. You do have some digestive enzymes that can uh, begin the digestion of starch, complex things like that, and breaking it down into simple sugars, uh, which can be absorbed. But stomach acid turns those enzymes right off, so they don't do very much. Mostly you just lubricate the food, chew it up, and get it to slide down the esophagus. And real digestion begins in the stomach. And the major event, the bulk of it goes on in the small intestine beyond the stomach. Why is it so important that your rediscovery of the second brain being in the gut, why is it so important now? And why was it in 1998 when you published the book? What is the essence of why that discovery is so important in terms of its impact? Well, you can't take an intelligent approach to helping anybody with a gut problem if you don't know how to control it. I mean, if you, if you think it's all in the head and everything you do is to treat the brain when the problem could be in the gut, you're lost. So it's very important always to know how every organ actually is run. And particularly when you have an organ such as the gut that can run itself, clearly you're going nowhere unless you know how to run it, how it runs, how it does that. But there's another reason as important as that is, and that is you do have an in a nervous system in the gut, and yes, it runs the gut, uh, but when it runs the gut, normally 
even though it can run the gut independently of any input from brain or spinal cord, it doesn't operate that way. It gets brain input from brain and spinal cord. Uh, and so what kind of input is that? Well, it superimposes commands on what the gut might otherwise do. So the brain can get it to do more or less and make it behave or misbehave. Um, secondly, it turns out that the two brains talk to each other. If you look at the vagus nerve, V-A-G-U-S, which is the major nerve, the conduit that conducts information to and from the gut, you find that there's far more fibers carrying information from the gut to the brain than from the brain to the gut. Oh, interesting. So that leads us to think that the gut has a lot of, that the brain is interested in learning about and the gut sends information up there. And now, in particularly UCLA, but other places as well, uh, stimulation of the vagus nerve, which can be done through the skin electrically to mimic the kinds of signals the gut would send to the brain, has been shown, actually, uh, to improve mood and is used to treat depression. Uh, and that kind of vagus nerve stimulation improves learning and memory in both humans and animals. So some of the signals which the gut sends to the brain that do not come to consciousness can help the brain's well-being. You had mentioned this discovery related to serotonin. And I want you to talk about the role of serotonin in the gut and also with SSRIs and what you discovered back then. Okay, so serotonin is a very well-known neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters can be thought of as the chemical language that nerve cells use to talk to each other. And I will use the word receptor, and the receptors are the ears that detect the words. So if one nerve cell has got a message for another, it puts out a chemical. The chemical goes to the other one and acts on a receptor, which means that the other, the, the following nerve cell, the follower, can understand what's been said and detects what the message, the message being contained in the chemical. So it's a chemical message. Uh, serotonin is one of the more famous of these. It's a small molecule, and it's well known for its effect in the brain. So you know that uh, mood is very much determined by serotonin. It contributes to sex. It contributes to eating and drinking. It contributes to temperature regulation, sleeping and dreaming. It seems, I mean, happiness itself needs a serotonin contribution. If it's not functioning, people may commit suicide. So it seems that everything that makes life worthwhile involves serotonin in one way or another. Nevertheless, perhaps 95% of the serotonin in the body is in the gut. So the gut is where the action is. And you can think of the brain for all the power that serotonin has there as an evolutionary afterthought in terms of uh, amount of serotonin. So what's it all doing in the gut, all the serotonin? 
for one thing, it, it was discovered years ago, it can trigger those reflexes that I told you about. So it can make the gut secrete. It can make the gut move. Um, if it's turned on, it can make you nauseated. So it does lots of different things, and it does it because although there's just one little molecule, serotonin, there are almost 20 different receptors that it talks to. And so depending on which of these receptors it activates, it has many different functions. So it can do lots of things. So it's a critical function, critical hormone for making the gut work. So some of the serotonin, the largest amount, is in the lining of the gut. And that not only triggers reflexes like the peristaltic reflex, which gets the gut to move, and secretion, which gets slime and fluid to go into the lumen of the gut. But in addition, it can trigger nausea, terrible nausea, uh, so it can send very nasty messages back to the brain that the brain hates to hear about, uh, which can train an animal very nicely, by the way, of what not to eat. Um, the gut, can, unfortunately, is a very powerful teacher in that respect, and it uses mostly negative reinforcement. Um, but serotonin also talks to distant organs coming from the gut, so it leaves the gut secreted into the blood, and influences bone. And so we now think that it may be very important in osteoporosis, maintenance of bone density. That's a profound connecting the dots. Yeah, it is really a very important substance. And most recently, uh, and it's the uh, theme of the latest application, that I have pending at the National Institutes of Health is it's very, very important in even sculpting the formation of the gut um, during uh, fetal life. So it's developmentally a growth factor. So it's a hormone. It's a neurotransmitter. It's a messenger. It does all many, many things. And knowing that it's in the gut turns out to be a very important piece of information. And you might think, and if you did, you'd be right, that if it doesn't work well, there's going to be some kind of disease that comes from it. And so there's evidence that uh, the misfunction or malfunction of serotonin may be important in uh, the irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease. What do you think about the SSRIs? And say what they are, too, if you would, please. Sure. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's a long word. SSRI is easier, which is why people use it. Um, and what they do is they turn off a molecule called, which is a pump. And it's a pump called the serotonin reuptake transporter or the serotonin transporter that pumps serotonin from the extracellular space into cells. So when serotonin is secreted, it goes across to a receptor, it has an action. But you can't let it just sit there. You've got to remove it. And 
to turn off the action. Otherwise, if you just left it on the receptor, the action would go on forever. So to turn it off, you take the serotonin back, and that involves this pump. So the SSRIs inhibit the pump. Well, what you can think of is this serotonin is turning a switch on, then the serotonin pump or the transporter turns the switch off. And if you inhibit the pump, then you favor on. So the reason you give an SSRI is to make the effect of serotonin longer and stronger. And ultimately, not immediately, but after two, three weeks in the brain, that makes you feel better if you start from a point of view of depression and it has effects elsewhere and the effects elsewhere have to do with making serotonin too strong so in the gut the SSRIs can make you feel nauseated which is the first thing they do which is called a side effect but it's not a side effect it's a direct effect and an unpleasant one and then they can cause diarrhea, and they can just stop the gut if they just so overly stimulate the serotonin effect that nothing moves anymore. Then you just have to stop them. So that's why it's also important, this discovery about the gut brain and the fact that serotonin is made there. Right. Is that it's and not it's just made in the brain. That's correct. And it's also very important to know that there are other places because it tells you the SSRIs have other effects and knowing that serotonin has an effect in development makes one wonder a second and third time about how wise it is to give this during pregnancy. And people are beginning to question that. What do you think of tryptophan? Well, that's where serotonin comes from. Tryptophan is an amino acid. One way to get tryptophan is eat a steak. Uh, another is to take it in a pill. I take it every night before I sleep. I prefer steak. <laughs> <laughs> it relaxes me, puts me to sleep. Oh, with a steak. Yeah, that's true, a good steak. Yeah, tryptophan is the precursor of serotonin, and, and it does better in getting serotonin levels up when you give it peripherally, um, in, when you're talking about brain serotonin than yes. peripheral serotonin. And the reason is that tryptophan is pumped into the brain. So if you eat a steak, you're, eventually you digest it and you absorb amino acids, one of which is tryptophan, which is what I'm talking about. And the tryptophan gets into the blood and goes to the capillaries or the small blood vessels that supply the brain, and they have a transporter and they move tryptophan into the brain. Otherwise, the blood-brain barrier keeps it out. And usually the enzymes that or the catalysts that make serotonin are not saturated and so when you put give them more tryptophan to chew on they make more serotonin so you can get a little jolt of more serotonin by taking tryptophan in the brain that works you talked about so many things from cholera to globalization and foodborne agents and I, I scared myself. I I, you scared up, me too. Gave up oysters. I will never eat a raw oyster. Talk about why. I think it's important for the audience. Well, I have two reasons. 
most people would have one. So one reason is that I'm Jewish, and uh, I discovered the hard way, I think, that my ancestors may have been on to something when they said, don't eat oysters. And I can think that, you know, there were, you know, the flight from Egypt, and they were getting the commandments and getting all set about what's going to be kosher and what's not, and talking to Moses and they noticed that if you got if you're out in the Sinai Desert and it's 104 in the shade, and somebody brings you an oyster in from the sea, and nobody has a refrigerator, best not to eat it. So talk about what we know now about the oysters. That still applies, and the reason it applies is that oysters are filter feeders. That is, whatever crap is in the sea gets concentrated in an oyster because they filter it. They filter their food and they eat it. How about clams? They do the same. Okay. And that means if you eat it, it had better have been living in very pristine water. And pristine water is becoming harder and harder to come by. Um, if you must eat them, be sure they, I would think it's a good idea to get them from some northerly climate, you know, like Nova Scotia, <laughs> where it's cold. Um, so I wrote in my book about a Khaleesi virus epidemic. You know, some ships sailed into the Gulf of Mexico, cleaned out its bilges, <laughs> dropped all that stuff over an oyster bed, a prime oyster bed. The oyster fishermen went out, bring in the oysters, sold them all over New Orleans, and they had a Khaleesi virus epidemic. And they... We're very good about it. The public health people, they've discovered, I got it, Khaleesi virus, and they typed it and found where it came from, found what oyster house was putting it out, and it was lots of them. So they tracked the oysters, and they all came from a single ship and found the bed. And they found the guy, you know, who was infected, you know, who defecated on the ship, and they cleaned out the bilge and put it into the oyster bed. And so people had, you know, they're an epidemic in New Orleans. That convinced me I don't need oysters. Let's talk about cholera for just a moment. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I didn't need to, I'm probably ruining your life. No, 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 it's okay. It's okay. I never ate oysters or clams anyway. Oh, okay. And I'm also Jewish, by the way. Cholera. In 1998, you said it claimed the lives of 3 million children. I'm sure it's higher now. Oh, yeah. Look, it's devastating Haiti at the moment. As we speak... The U.N. sent peacekeeping troops to Haiti, and they had a campment of troops. They contaminated the drinking water and brought the virus over from Africa. Not the virus, the uh, cholera. Uh, they brought the bacterium over from Africa, and uh, it's doing a job. So what cholera does is uh, it turns on, it makes a toxin that causes the switch that puts fluid into the gut, which is very useful for getting rid of organisms, but it turns it into high gear and you can't turn off. And so it makes your colon a spigot and you just clean it out. And it gets so clean, the stool doesn't even smell anymore. It's just so clean, it's wonderful, except that you die that way because you're just flowing out. And so the way it's treated is they have cholera cots in which they put a hole in the cot and a graduated cylinder under the patient, 
and you just keep track of how much fluid is coming out and put that back intravenously, that amount, and you can keep a patient alive. You don't even need antibiotics. They don't do much. You just have to keep a person going. So there's no reason if you have a, you know, fluid replacement therapy adequately that anybody should die of cholera. Is there a way to get that bacteria out of the system once you have it? Well, you don't have to worry about it. You knock it out. You're much tougher than it is. So is there a way to prevent oneself from getting cholera for the people sure. that are traveling? Yeah, bring your water. <laughs> Purify your water with chlorine tablets or boil it. That'll do it. How long do you have to boil it? Just a few minutes, one or two minutes, as long as it's, the, the organism is, hates that kind of heat. Once you've boiled water sufficiently and then it cools off, you can still drink it. Oh, sure, sure. You don't have to drink it while it's boiling. You can't do that. <laughs> Once you boiled it, you kill the organisms and, and then you're fine, unless you pour other water into it that's contaminated. The other thing you have to do when you're dealing with a waterborne pathogen is not eat anything that's been in the water. For example, if you like to clean your lettuce off and you clean it off with contaminated water, you can, lettuce can give you a good case of cholera. What about in the United States right now, for those of us living in the United States, how do you clean your vegetables and your fruits? I clean my vegetables and things off with water because I live in New York City, and New York City has extremely good water. They have a very good watershed. Our corrupt predecessors made a fortune buying land upstate, but now the city owns it, and they try to keep as much as possible the communities upstate New York from contaminating New York City's drinking water, and they have so far been successful. Interesting. But New York City is a very good place to get water. And in most communities in America are also quite good because even if they don't have very pure water to begin with, they purify it and put some chlorine in and fix it. So it, it, nothing, no pathogens. So you can clean stuff off. And it's a good idea to do it because uh, much of the uh, fruit and vegetables that we get in this country come from areas where you know you know enough not to eat them when you're there but we import them and then eat them here so it's a good idea to clean them pretty well it's amazing how much is imported even with trader joe's and whole foods unbelievable how much we import oh absolutely by the way you know the heart healthy diet has been great for the heart but it's been hell on the gut that's interesting do you take enzymes pancreatic enzymes or any type of enzymes? No, I make my own. My pancreas takes care of me. The only way, reason you'd need them is if for some reason or other your pancreas failed. Um, it does that in people with pancreatitis uh, or people who have cancer of the pancreas and have the pancreas removed. Then you have to take pancreatic enzymes. Otherwise, you're fine. You wrote a lot about globalization and foodborne agents and how easy it is to contract something. Why did you write about that in The Second Brain? Well, in 1998, it was a very cogent problem. It was just beginning. Uh, now it's more cogent. Here, I just spoke of uh, the UN sent troops to Haiti right. to maintain order. They came from Africa bearing cholera. 
They set up a camp, and now there's a cholera epidemic raging in Haiti. Haiti has no good way of cleaning water. Everybody's drinking contaminated water, and it just keeps going on and on and on. And so hundreds of thousands of people have had cholera. Um, their deaths up the out, you know. They have so many deaths from things like cholera in Haiti, we don't even talk about it because, you know, they're so ordinary. Everybody's dying in Haiti. It's not, not news anymore. So that's part of globalization. Somebody gets sick somewhere, they get on a plane, and everybody gets sick all over. Every flu epidemic we have begins in China, almost with regularity. So that's why, you know, manufacturers of flu vaccine monitor what's going on in China. Why do they monitor what's going on in China? Because whatever's going on in China will be imported here shortly. And so the idea is figure out what's the latest flu, make the vaccine, and by the time it gets here, you hope you're ready. And the reason it all begins in China is that in rural China, people live with the birds, the ducks, and the pigs on the farm. And they spread the uh, the flu to the humans who who live with them. The humans live very close, spread it to other humans, and the epidemic begins each year. We get our yearly our yearly dose of the flu from China. What has been the biggest series of ahas or discoveries since the publishing of the Second Brain that have come to you in the last thirteen years? Some have been good, some have been not so good. So one bad thing has been that progress toward control of very troubling disorders like irritable bowel syndrome looked a hell of a lot better in 1998 than they do now. Why? Well, because the drugs that seem to be very effective for the treatment of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome have now been removed from the market uh, or heavily restricted uh, for reasons of safety. Um, and it's quite controversial, but nevertheless, they are removed. And so right at the moment, there's not a very good way to treat it, that condition. So you treat it with uh, what is called conventional therapy, and what all conventional therapies have in common is failure. So it's not very good for people, that condition. What's the good news? So that's the bad news. <laughs> and the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has taken the tack that um, the irritable bowel syndrome you know, won't kill you. Nobody ever died of irritable bowel syndrome. That's true. But studies have shown that the uh, that condition is very, very detrimental to quality of life and has the same negative impact on quality of life that diabetes does. So I would say, from my way of thinking, that quality of life is not unimportant. I treasure it. And uh, the other thing is I, I think the FDA, and this is just between us, but... Uh, if you want, you can quote me. Is you know, I think that people don't take diseases of women seriously enough because the people who make decisions are predominantly men, and irritable bowel syndrome 
is um, female predominant. Explain what it is and tell us why it's female predominant. I'll explain what it is, but I won't tell you why it's female predominant. Okay. And the reason I won't tell you is I, I don't know. Okay. That's the short answer. That's honest. But I'll tell you something about female predominance in, in that in, in a moment. But what it is is a change in bowel habit associated with discomfort and or pain, which is long-lasting in the gut. And it can be disabling. can be very, very bad. It is not life-threatening usually, except it can drive people to despair. If you're chained to a toilet seat, you're not very good company. So it's not a good condition to have. And it's best to be able to get rid of it and go through life without this trouble from the gut. I I can't tell you the number of pleas I have for aggravated people who can't stand it anymore. Nevertheless, uh, we don't have very good ways of treating it right now. People are working on it. The one thing I can tell you about it's being predominantly in women is that in our society it is, and I have a suspicion, at least in part, it's because um, women are more likely than men to own up to it. Men are too macho. Uh, You know, they don't like to admit that their gut is driving them crazy, whereas women are more likely to seek help. And in Southeast Asia... IBS is a, is a male-predominant disease. Wow, I didn't know that. Asia, the culture is, I think, that men are, are allowed to complain, and women, they don't tolerate complaints from in, in that part of the world. Women, are, you know, you go get back in the field behind your oxen or whatever, take care of the kids. I know it's getting better. In some places, you know, they just decide they're even going to let women vote in Saudi Arabia. I was seeing that the other day. I was thinking, my they God. so far as to let him drive a car. <laughs> uh, or complain of irritable bowel syndrome. And what's the point of complaining? Because if you went to a male doctor, it can't, can't even touch a woman anyway. <laughs> That's true. And they don't let women into medical school. So, you know, it's tough. Anyway, in our society, it, it, it is female predominant. More so in uh, tertiary practice, the worst conditions. In any case, uh, I think it's not taken seriously enough. And so uh, drug therapy that, like NSAIDs, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like uh, Advil, Motrin, uh, you know, they're over-the-counter. Everybody takes them for um, arthritis. Very strong medicines are available for migraine. But, you know, those strike the FDA as real conditions, whereas IBS, no. I don't understand that. So, you know, drugs that had much less toxicity than Advil uh, are off the market. I have nothing really complimentary to say about the FDA at this time, so I'm just going to let that go. All right, let's let it go. (laughs) I'm glad the FDA is there. Let's put it this way. You know, it's good to have somebody looking at the drugs. I don't think if, if somebody weren't doing it we'd be in worse trouble. I think there's more than what they do than what you're talking about, but that's a whole other show and a whole other emphasis. Okay, let's leave that, but, uh, that go. That's okay. But I wanted to ask you about the pancreas. Can you share with us what the pancreas does and also about the gallbladder and the tight regulation of pH in the gut? Okay, that's a number of questions. 
Yes. Okay, let's start with the pancreas. So the pancreas is the major organ for producing the hard-working digestive enzymes. Pancreatic juice can turn a steak into a soup very quickly. Uh, these enzymes break large molecules like the starches that you eat, proteins, um, nucleic acids like DNA into their component parts and these components can be absorbed. So digestion is not finished totally by pancreatic enzymes but the bulk of it is done by pancreatic enzymes. The lining of the gut puts the final touches on digestion. But you bring the, you break large molecules down into small by what the pancreas secretes. And it's critical organ. You cannot live without it. It also is an endocrine gland. That is, it makes hormones like insulin and glucagon um, that are very important for metabolism, regulation of blood sugar. So the pancreas is a critical organ. It's a dangerous organ because if it puts digestive enzymes in the wrong place or if they escape the channels where you keep them thoroughly bottled up and going to the lumen of the gut to digest there, um, you can, you know, you're made of these same proteins that pancreatic enzymes digest. So if you let the pancreas loose on your body, it's what it secretes, it can do you in. So pancreatitis is a scary disease. And cancer of the pancreas is an extremely scary disease, in part because it's hard to operate on, and in part because it doesn't give you symptoms, usually until it's too late. And so it's 98% fatal. So pancreas is one scary organ but necessary. Now, the gallbladder is involved in the digestion of fat, and it's also um, part of the excretory system for um, uh, things that aren't very water-soluble that the liver excretes. So it goes into the bile. So bile gets concentrated in the gallbladder, so what the gallbladder exists for is just to store the bile that the liver makes. And the bile contains molecules that act as detergents that are very important for digesting fat. So pancreatic lipase, which digests fat, can work because the bile emulsifies the fat and puts some detergent on it. And so this... Um, enzymes can get at the fat molecules. So it's very, very important organ for that purpose. Why do people remove the gallbladder? Well, because the gallbladder, I told you, concentrates the bile. And when it concentrates the bile, certain things, if they're in high concentration, sometimes precipitate out and make stones. So you can get um, either oxalate or bilirubin. These are components of bile and they crystallize out and make stones. And you get infection of the gallbladder when those stones form. And so you can't stop stones from forming. And it's hard just to take the stone out 
and so people give it up and take out the gallbladder. And it's okay if you take the gallbladder out, and if you don't eat too much fat, um, because the, the, the liver is still making the bile, it's just you can't concentrate it and blast away at fat. So it's best not to eat fatty meals if you've lost your gallbladder. It's sometimes necessary to take it out. Infection of your gallbladder is not fun. You put in the book that there's a tight regulation of the pH in the gut. Right. Talk about that. What does that mean? Okay. Well, pH is the acidity Correct. of fluid. And so the stomach makes acid, and it's important it should be acid. Um, it Not only the acid denatures proteins, gets them to unfold so the digestive enzymes later can have a go at them, good whack at them these big molecules, but it also um, sterilizes what you eat. So when you eat stuff, the bacteria coming in are bathed in hydrochloric acid. I mean, you can dissolve metal with, with your what's in your stomach. And so that's real good. And in order to be a pathogen that can infect the gut, the bugs have had to manage to survive in all of that which unfortunately some have, but pretty much you clean up your food by passing it through there. And then you dump that into the small intestine. Well, the content of the stomach is very, very acid. It's a pH of one, and it's going into the stomach, and pancreatic enzymes like to work at neutral pH, around pH 7. So you need to get rid of the acid. So your gut senses how much acid is there, and then the pancreas and the duodenum, the first part of the small intestine, make a lot of alkali and neutralize it. And so the pH is kept tightly just in the right range so that the digestive enzymes work. One enzyme, for example, called pepsin, which breaks proteins down into smaller molecules called peptides, works beautifully at a pH of around 2 to 3 in the stomach. But when it goes into the small intestine and the pH is raised, it turns off, which means that pepsin does no more damage, can't do anything to the lining. You turn it off. So it acts only in one where it belongs, in the stomach. And if there's any backflow of trypsin or other pancreatic enzymes into the stomach, they won't do any damage because they're turned off by the acid. So acid turns out to be pretty important and regulated closely. Likewise, as I just told you, if that acid gets out of the stomach and goes up into the esophagus, it hurts like hell. So you keep it bottled up in the stomach pretty well. There seems to have been, in the last 10 years, a huge focus on probiotics. What do you think of that for the stomach? Well, they don't do much for the stomach. In fact, they do nothing for the stomach. What they do things for is the intestine. Let's talk about that. Okay, so you're a platform for carrying bugs around, you know, bacteria. You have more bacterial genes for the bacteria that's living on you and more bacterial cells in you than uh, you do of your own cells or your own genes. 
So this massive amount of bacteria is not just living there inertly. It does things, some of them beneficial, some less so. And these bacteria are uh, together as a community that we call the microbiome of the gut. And um, that community can be very, very important. And if it's misfunctional or if the wrong kind of organisms are dominant, um, you'd want to change that. So the idea with um, probiotics is to give you some useful bacteria that can live in your gut. So some companies like Danon, for example, for which, let me make clear, divulge that I consult, uh, Danon makes Activia, which is a probiotic. Activia was carefully selected by Danin from thousands of different strains of bacteria to actually survive as it goes down the gut and get into the colon and come out in the stool. And um, it can help make um, increase the speed of movement of material through the large intestine. And if you're mildly constipated, it'll help alleviate that. So probiotics can do some good. I'm glad to hear that because there's a lot more people that are looking into it today. But the whole issue of it surviving the intestine is the big question. So are they enterically coded or how does it work? No, they selected the right organism. So it comes in a yogurt, but the yogurt is just the filler. It's a carrier for this organism and it, it ferments the yogurt and it actually has been shown, demonstrated conclusively by Danon. I mean, they've been sued because people thought, aha, we'll get them. Uh, they can't possibly have any evidence for their claims. And it turned out they had, uh, you know, truckloads of evidence for their claims. They have a huge research plant, and they actually went through thousands of different bacteria. And not only do they know that the bacteria actually survive in large numbers and make it all the way through the bowel and come out in the stool. But in addition, they've done clinical studies and show that if you take you know, two cups or more of Activia a day, it will speed GI transit and relieve minor constipation. They actually have the evidence. It's an unusual food company. Not very many food companies go out and get evidence. They make claims first, then they get their evidence if necessary. It's a food product? Activia? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Danon's very careful to make certain that they're a food company, not a, a drug company. And so they're not treating diseases. They're just providing a probiotic, which has a beneficial effect. And it's meant not for people with a real illness, but for people who... Uh, would like to be a little more regular in terms of their bowel movements. What's new on the horizon for you today as we wrap up? Share with us what you're working on now. Well, I'm working on two major issues. One is the role of serotonin in getting stem cells, which are retained in adult gut, to make new nerve cells, which might be able to repair damage to the gut in adults 
and I'm looking at the role that serotonin plays in fetal life as a sculptor of the bowel, of the nervous system of the bowel. And the second major thing that I'm doing is a project that I'm doing with my wife, which has to do with varicella zoster virus, which is the virus that causes chickenpox and shingles. And we found that this virus lives in nerve cells in gut as well as in um, the sensory nerve cells of the dorsal root and cranial nerve ganglia. And so um, we're looking into what might be uh, shingles of the gut. How interesting. And you're doing that with your wife? Is she also a biochemist? Well, my wife is uh, chief of pediatric infectious disease here at Columbia, and she's very well known for the development of the chickenpox vaccine. Wow. So that's our family virus. After many years of talking over the dinner table about her virus and my nerve cells, we decided to introduce her virus to my nerve cells, and uh, as we say in Yiddish, they made a shidduch, or they made a match, matchmaker. It must be interesting to have a marriage where you also share a calling, you know, well, which is solving in diseases. In our case, we share a virus, <laughs> <laughs> at least an interest in a virus. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Michael Gershon. He is the author of the 1998 book, The Second Brain. Your gut has a mind of its own. A groundbreaking new understanding of nervous disorders of the stomach and the intestine. For those of you who would like to read about Dr. Gershon, you can go to columbia.edu. There'll be a link at the bottom of the page. And we want to thank you for being with us today, Dr. Gershon. My pleasure. <laughs> 